God's top 10 list newly revised. Number 10 states, thou shalt not COVID thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not COVID thy neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant. That's breaking news. Otherwise, welcome to episode four of our six-part series entitled Refresh. It's all about how God used a prophet named John to lead Israel beyond the stagnation of their religion to a new beginning that would refresh their souls. This episode is entitled Seeing is Believing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we know that you are up to something. And this is a time in which uh, so many things have stopped, but you have not stopped working. And we wait in eager anticipation to see what you have been doing when all this is finally resolved. And uh, we look forward to being able to rejoice in the new things that you were always planning, the new beginnings that you have prepared for us. And as we think about that, we thank you for your word this morning, and we just thank you that uh, we can see ourselves in it, we can see our, our time in this as well. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. During my lifetime, I've witnessed a number of uh, turning points in history. And I'm not referring to Gutenberg's printing press, that was a little bit before my time. More recent history, like November the 22nd, 1963, when JFK was assassinated, that tragedy changed the world because it created a vacuum, an emptiness, that was filled a few months later when the Ed Sullivan Show introduced the Beatles to North America. That not only filled the emptiness, it overflowed into ultimately into the hippie revolution. That was a major turning point. And what about October 1973? That was the first time I experienced a church potluck supper. Maybe you remember your first time. Church has never been the same again. Well, there were other turning points like, like Watergate and the fall of the Iron Curtain. And of course, 9-11. The world was very different after that terrorist attack. We would never be the same again. And now there's this pandemic, which obviously is going to be another turning point. The only question is, which way will history turn? In John chapter 3, verse 19, we read, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We know that for many decades, history has been progressively moving deeper into that darkness. The momentum has been relentless, but the coronavirus has forced us to stop. Everything is shut down. So this is a great opportunity for us to check our GPS, because if we ever wanted to turn in another direction, this would be the time that opportunity may not come again. And that's what happened 2,000 years ago in the fullness of time. After 400 years of silence, God sent a prophet to Israel. 
His name was John, and his message was repent. It means to turn around, to turn away from the darkness that you've loved, which will ultimately destroy you, and turn towards the light of the world, the one who offers you eternal life. So repent. It's a no-brainer. At traffic intersections in our city, we can see this happening once in a while. A motorist will suddenly repent and make a U-turn. To us, it seems a bit extreme because we're not used to that in Canada. But they must have realized they were going in the wrong direction. Repentance is like that. It changes the direction of our lives. And John the Baptist called Israel to repent. And those who responded were baptized in the Jordan River. It symbolized a new beginning, turning away from sin towards righteousness. But baptism? Are you kidding? That was outrageous because Jews didn't get baptized. If a Gentile was converted to Judaism, they had to be baptized, but not Jews, not the descendants of Abraham. That would be utterly humiliating. That would be like uh, Mark Zuckerberg applying for a job on the Geek Squad at Best Buy. That would be like, like world-class cyclists in the Tour de France competing with training wheels. That would be like Beethoven working as a piano tuner. That would be like, uh, like Gutenberg. Yeah, I don't have anything for him because that was a bit before my time. But Jews did not get baptized. However, this was a most impressive sight. All these people streaming down to the Jordan to get baptized. Imagine going through that hot wilderness and then being immersed in the refreshing waters of the Jordan River. This was the work of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it would never have happened. We need something like that in our generation. Now, the religious leaders were watching all of this from a safe distance because they were experts at social distancing. And as they watched, they scoffed at this spectacle because up to now, they had a monopoly. All sinners would come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, bringing a sacrifice. They had a monopoly on the religious aspirations of the people. That was their only option, to come to Jerusalem. But now they had competition. Now the people were going in the opposite direction, away from Jerusalem toward the Jordan River. Well, that's not right. By what authority does he do this? He does not have charitable tax-exempt status. He doesn't even have a business license. This is an illegal operation. This is some kind of black market superstition. It's just another cult that capitalizes on the hysteria and the fear of the ignorant masses. I mean, look at them. Have you ever seen a more pathetic swarm of sinners? There's thieves and prostitutes and tax collectors and evildoers. 
Oh God, I thank you that we are not like all these other men. I wouldn't be caught dead in a line with degenerate, filthy sinners. Imagine what that would do to your reputation. Not to mention the, the fleas and the ticks and the bed bugs in their beards and the spider eggs in their hair and whatever unknown viruses they may carry. Unclean! Unclean! And yet, there he was, down at the Jordan, the Son of God, holy, 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 standing in a line with publicans and prostitutes waiting for his turn to be baptized. John chapter 3, verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John had previously talked about preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. It was the biggest event in 400 years. It made you think of a grand procession with trumpets alerting the spectators, pounding drums, punctuating the drama, pots banging from every balcony, sirens sounding throughout the land. Where could you buy tickets for the best seats. we got to see this. How would the king of kings appear to Israel? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. In his first public appearance, he's standing in a line with sinners waiting to be baptized. Next. Oh, this is mind-boggling. Because if baptism was beneath the dignity of the average Jew, then what is he doing here? No wonder John the Baptist was shocked. In verse 14, John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? You shouldn't be here. This is the servant's entrance. You should be coming through the front door. How can I baptize you? I'm not worthy. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And so the sinless Son of God was deliberately identifying himself with the sinners that he had come to save. Being made in human likeness, he humbled himself taking the very nature of a servant and made himself nothing. Jesus was really the only resident on planet Earth who did not need to repent, who didn't need to be baptized, but he humbled himself so that none of those who'd follow him could ever say, no way, that's beneath my dignity. Jesus humbled himself to the lowest extent and then invites us to follow him. To paraphrase Michael Buffer, let's get ready to be humbled. But what would people think? There are many who resist baptism by immersion because they just think it's too humiliating. But isn't that the point? What a great opportunity to humble ourselves, to give our ego a nervous breakdown, 
to put our pride into lockdown. But isn't that kind of extreme? Well, look at it this way. It could have been worse. What if all the followers of Jesus had to shave their heads, wear robes of camel hair, eat locusts and honey, or substitute a gluten-free grasshopper option, and then drive horse-drawn buggies to church? Immersion baptism is really not that extreme. But what would people think? Or better yet, what would God think? Verse 16 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Incidentally, that's exactly how God feels about you. This is how he's going to introduce you in heaven. This is my daughter whom I love. This is my son. With him I am well pleased. And speaking of introductions, that was John's mission. He was the master of ceremonies who would introduce the Savior of the world. But many were already wondering if John maybe was the Messiah because of the impact he was having. In John chapter 1, verse 19, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. No, I'm... I'm just the MC. I'm the best man getting ready for the main event. Which leads us to verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look. I find the word look a bit underwhelming. This is one place where I prefer the King James Version because it uses a stronger word, much more dynamic. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. To me, behold is more than just look at this, check this out. Because as my grandsons say, well, that's cool, thou... What else you got? Talk about a short attention span. To look is, is often temporary, transitory. Behold implies being transfixed until we're transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Because it's not just the visible that we behold. It includes depth perception, Beyond the surface, seeing into the heart. Behold means we have reached our final destination. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what it's all about. Behold, the Lamb of God. And as you behold, you find that the resolution keeps getting sharper. We see through a glass darkly. And then we get standard definition, 
And then we get high definition. And then 4K and 8K and 16K and up to 8,000K and beyond. That's only the beginning. So behold the Lamb of God. You don't need to look anywhere else because this is God's best. This is his final offer. In fact, this is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. Huh. So that's Jesus. Interesting. Okay, God, what else you got? Can I take a selfie with Jesus? Well, John the Baptist was not a guide pointing out the sights on a Holy Land tour. He had a specific mission, and this was the culmination of it. This is it. We have reached our destination. No need to look further. Behold the Lamb of God. In our culture, we have a lot of people who are looking for something. They're looking for hope. They're looking for love in often all the wrong places. They're looking for fulfillment, for recognition, looking for entertainment. And the best of them are looking for answers. And that is commendable. In fact, it's more than commendable. It's, it's cool. There are even churches who claim we don't always have the answer, but we join you in your quest. Because searching gets the good housekeeping seal of approval in our culture. I don't know if they still give that out. Maybe the equivalent would be 10,000 likes on YouTube. Our culture is very hospitable to those who are searching. But it gets suspicious and hostile towards anyone who claims to have found the truth. Because that's more threatening. I don't like the sound of that. Does that mean you're going to try to convert me? Do I have to go to a timeshare presentation? I liked you better when you were just searching. I liked you better as a customer rather than a salesman. You see, people who have found the answer, whether it's Tupperware or Amway or the Book of Mormon, People like that can be very annoying. They make us feel like some predator is stalking us. Henry David Thoreau said this. I'm going to paraphrase him. He said, if I knew that someone was going to come to my house with the intention of doing me some good, I would run for my life. We don't like people like that. Searching is allowed as long as you don't find what you're looking for. That's, those are the official rules of Paradise Lost. Well, John the Baptist was not like that. He knew his nation needed answers desperately. And of course, so do we. In this pandemic, we don't need some scientific researcher telling us that he's searching for a cure. Yeah, that's fine. What we're waiting for is someone who says, I have found the cure. I have the answer. That's when it gets meaningful. And John the Baptist was like that. Because the religion 
of the Jewish people did not have the answer. It didn't have the cure. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament did not take away sin. At best, those sacrifices were like a high-interest loan that they hoped somebody else would someday be willing to pay off. Well, that day had come. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is, the one who pays for all our sins. Balance owing zero. What we should be looking for is not fulfillment. We should be looking for forgiveness. That is where our souls get refreshed and where the new beginning takes place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow. Well, that's great. Now we can get on with the rest of our lives. No, that's not the point. Beholding cures attention deficit disorder. Beholding isn't just a great experience that we have once. It's a lifestyle. It is fixing our eyes on Jesus, giving him our undivided attention from here to eternity. It's because we know that life is about something. We can feel it inside of us. There's a hunger. There's a thirst. Unfortunately, most of us just settle for snacks. Well, that's not enough. We're undernourished until we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only then is our soul refreshed and satisfied. So let me put it like this. For me, it's kind of a process. So I would say a new beginning involves three stages. The first stage is believing. Believing in Jesus. Believing that he is the only way to God. That's salvation. John came preaching the word of God and many people believed his message. They believed it was authentic, authoritative, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's how it all begins, believing, having faith. Romans 10, 17 says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. That's how it all begins. But of course, there's more. Because the second stage is behaving. If we really believe it will change the way we behave. John pointed that out to his audience in Luke chapter 3. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What should we do then, the crowd asked. And John said, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. And tax collectors don't collect any more than you are required to. And soldiers, do not extort money, do not accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. If you believe, it's going to change the way you behave. Let me put it this way. If you were arrested for being a Calgary Flames fan, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
Well, of course. You got the t-shirt and the towel and the pajamas. And I place into evidence Exhibit A as season's ticket and their witness who will testify that uh, they saw you in the saddle dome cheering Lanny McDonald or Theron Fleury or Joe Neuendijk or Jerome McGinley. And someone else overheard you arguing with an Oilers fan because you are not ashamed. What you believe in your heart will be heard from your mouth and will be seen in your behavior. There will be evidence. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is the answer, the only way to God, it will show on the outside. And sometimes even in radical ways to the extent that the world will start noticing it. And it will often make people uncomfortable, and they may even hate you for it. Jesus pointed that out in John 15, 19, where he says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world that is why the world hates you. If you behave the way the world does, if you use foul language and engage in raunchy jokes, if your lifestyle shows overindulgence, addiction, promiscuity, materialism, gossip, if you conform to that pattern, they will accept you and love you because you're, you're one of us. But if you behave differently in modesty, in mercy, in meekness, if you forgive those who don't deserve it, if you love your enemies, I mean, that's, that's going too far. People will feel uncomfortable with that sort of thing. You're not on our side, are you? Traitor! If you believe in Jesus, it will change the way you behave and that could get you into trouble. John 16, Jesus says, In this world, you will have trouble. And for some, that's too much. They can't handle it. It's a deal breaker. They just crumble and they compromise. And we all know people who were part of the church family. They believed all the right things. They were baptized, they took communion, and their behavior displayed respectable Christian virtues. And then all of a sudden, something happened, and they turned away. Is that possible? Of course it is. That's what happened to me. Why? Because for me, there was something missing. I hadn't gone far enough all I had was kind of a mild dose of Christianity. And that brings us to the third stage. Religion can challenge us to believe and teach us to behave. But is there something more? John told the Jews what to believe and how to behave. But his work wasn't finished until he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, it's all ultimately about Jesus. If I just experience Christianity in a general way, if I go to church and participate in some way, 
I can still take it or leave it because I'm immunized. I got a mild dose and now I'm immune. But if I truly experience Jesus Christ, I will never be the same again. If I truly experience who he is, how could I give that up? Where else would I go? Because our soul becomes imprinted on the one we behold. We are bonding with him, forsaking all others, and we keep ourselves for him alone. And that's precisely why I came back. Not because I missed the announcements or the deacon's meetings or even the potluck suppers. I came back because I experienced Jesus in a life-transforming way, and my faith got refreshed. And what, what personally impacted me the most was his forgiveness. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. He takes away our sin. He forgives us. That's incredible. Once you experience that, you can never go back. But, and there's so much more than that as well. There's his love. There's his gentleness. There's his majesty. Once we experience the fullness of Christ, we can never turn back. The Samaritan woman was told this in John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is an ongoing refreshing that we experience because we have been given living water. In John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Boy, that sounds refreshing. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. And that's why this is the ultimate goal of the Christian life, to behold. That's what Lowell, that's what we're hungering and thirsting for. That's what life on earth is all about. And that's what eternity is all about as well. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, What we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we behold him, we will be transformed into his likeness. We'll become like him because we will see him as he is. But that's already happening. We're already beholding him and being transformed because the next verse says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, virginity rocks. Behold, because that's what permanently transforms us. In John 1, verse 35, it says, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. 
When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied. Come, and you will see. Because in some cases, seeing is believing, and a whole lot more. Father, we thank you that you provide this opportunity for us that we can behold the Lamb of God, that we can personally experience the impact of his forgiveness. Because life is not about finding fulfillment. Life is about finding forgiveness. That's how it all begins. That's how we get refreshed. That's how our souls come alive. And when that happens, there's so much more. And it all has to do with fixing our eyes and attention on Jesus Christ. All honor and glory to him. We pray. Amen.